1: Libby is on vacation this week, so I will be with you on Fight Back through Friday. Will the throne speech pass a confidence vote in Ottawa? There is every indication a deal has been done between the minority Trudeau Liberals and the Jugmeet Singh New Democrats to pass proposed legislation for new COVID-19 aid programs. We just heard in Bob's news that a confidence vote could come before the end of today on a revamped bill which increases benefit payments and expands eligibility for paid sick leave related to COVID-19. COVID-19. This is topic number one, as we welcome our Tuesday strategy panel, John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Bird, managing principal of Ernst Strategy Group in Toronto. Hello there. Hey, Jane. Hi, Jane. Hi, Jane. Charles, is there any doubt the New Democrats will vote against this revised bill? um there's
2: always some modicum of doubt in elections or votes in legislatures and parliaments are unpredictable by their very nature and anything can happen but it appears that uh new democrats have come to the conclusion that now is not the time to uh force an election given that we appear to be in the grips of the second wave of the pandemic i think the other opposition parties are are much of the same mind uh in no hurry to um uh go to the polls especially given that the leader of the conservatives and the leader of the bloc quebecois have only just recovered from COVID. so what i do think you've seen is a perfectly natural uh, occurrence of of a minority government which is to say that governments will rely in a minority situation on the support of at least one or more opposition parties i think we've seen a very positive outcome with the extension of sick pay leave for a great many Canadians, and there's still work to be done in terms of ensuring that people going off the CERB at the end of the month will be provided for under um, reforms to the current EI program, and that's especially true of uh, short-term workers and folks from the so-called gig economy.
1: Karen, what do you make of the apparent cooperation? Well, I think it's...
3: um the NDP right now has the advantage, and so they're going to ask for whatever they need, and they'll probably get it uh, because I, th- I think to Charles's point, there is a general sense that going to the polls right now is not in anyone's interest. And so I think that you know the NDP is in the sweet spot right now. they are uh, they are the power brokers, and so they may as well ask for everything they want because they'll get it.
1: Yes, it would seem that way. You know, what I'm wondering, though, is how much leeway was in the original bill that the Liberals knew that they would have to tweak? I mean, is it really a win for Jagmeet Singh, or as he puts it, a win for Canadians, or is it something that they felt they were going to have to do anyway?
3: Well, I think that Jagmeet Singh can take credit for the health health benefit, um, because that wasn't part of the Liberals' Uh, it, uh, proposals they were more of the guaranteed income supplement and the wage subsidy and and other income supports and so the sick the sick benefit was something that the NDP had come out with months ago and so you know and and it, it snags right into a discussion about federal provincial jurisdiction around sick days and actually how is it going to get implemented, which is a whole other level of discussion. But uh, they're, they're the ones, the NDP were the ones that were really advancing that. So I, I think that he gets to take full credit for that.
1: And John, remind us why the opposition conservatives have said uncategorically or categorically they're voting against the provisions in the throne speech.
4: Well, they fundamentally just disagree with the liberals. And I think that traditionally uh, conservatives have always, uh, in a minority liberal government, have have voted against them. And just on principle, I think it's for a number of reasons. It's for um, ensuring that their base remains uh, solid behind them. I think that in general, they just uh didn't like the fact that you know that that the prime minister has used the throne speech as a way to try to get out of the wee scandal i think out of principle uh they just fundamentally believe that that's what that's what the case was the throne speech didn't have anything of of import uh or bold new ideas uh, as the prime minister uh, said, he was going to do, uh, you know, back uh, when he when he probed Parliament, uh, and quite frankly, so I think a lot of it is uh, is just more gamesmanship. You know, no one's surprised, quite frankly, Jane, that that the NDP uh, are supporting the Liberals. We uh, predicted that on this panel some time ago that that uh, likely would have been the case. So you, you see in history political history both provincially and federally uh, the ndp normally uh, tend to uh, tend to support the liberal minority government and i say they do that at their own peril uh, quite frankly because what happens is and what we're seeing now federally with with this uh, government and the uh the ndp under jagmeet singh uh is is the potential of the liberals moving further left uh, if that's even possible to uh, and actually sort of encroach upon a lot of the NDP base and support, which is why I think we're seeing in the polls the NDP not doing particularly well. And that's something that they always have to worry about whenever they do, uh, because they do, ca- they do claim to have the victory and say, that, hey, we won this because we got, we got the, uh, the program, the 500 a week, as opposed to 400, we got sick leave. And that's all very important. But quite frankly, I always think that the government, the Liberal government, uh, you know, do that by way of negotiating. It's no different than when you, when you put a bid on a house, if the asking price is, say, 500000 and you put a, a bid for $400,000, um, you, there's some negotiating. I think the Liberals knew that they were going to be probably doing a deal with the NDP, so they... They purposely kept the price low, knowing that, or the uh, the amount low, so that knowing that the Liberals or the NDP would come in and ask it for it to be higher. So right, it, I it, agree, it yeah. what happened, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, now, how does this position Aaron O'Toole, though, as a leader for Canadians, uh, by voting against the throne speech and saying it's out of principle because of proroguing and the We Charity, how does that make uh, Canadians who might be swayed to vote Conservative next time feel that he has their best interests in mind? Well, and
4: I think that's I, I think you otoole has been doing a fairly good job, you know, despite the fact that he's said uh, that he's uh, he was tested uh, positive with, with covid. Um, you know, but he's only been a leader now for for uh, less than a month. And I think he's done as much as he can to try to get himself out there uh, and also pay the vision of what he wants by way of by way of if he became prime minister. I don't think Canadians are going to judge uh, the Conservatives harshly on this. At the end of the day, they've been supportive of the Liberals throughout the pandemic since March uh, basically agreeing and and giving them whatever dispensation they needed to get the programs out and and the spending out there, um, you know, with with of course the obvious check and balance every once in a while to ensure that the money that's being sent out there, you know, as we saw with this we program, is being done in a way that actually benefits Canadians in the long run.
1: We are with our strategy panel, our Tuesday strategy panel, John Capobianco, Karen Stintz, and Charles Bird. They're here every Tuesday between noon and 1230. If you'd like to get involved in the conversation, the phone lines are open, 416 740 toll-free 1-866-744-740. Uh, before we leave this topic, Charles, I just want to talk about uh, the time, the judge. Meet Singh is buying. I mean, we all know pre-pandemic, it was a tough go for him uh, during the last federal election. He couldn't even get to all of the ridings. So certainly in the pandemic, he's not in a better position than he was uh, last year. Was the election was last year. Yeah, you lose track because of this pandemic. It was 2019. It was 2019. Uh, so what does this do for him in terms of uh, him becoming um, just a more visible household name for people to build his popularity?
2: It does buy him a little bit of time, but the notion that the NDP somehow hold all the cards in this relationship is, is just not the case. To, to be perfectly blunt, and I can say this because I'm not part of the government, the Liberals would love to go to polls. The Liberals would love to be defeated in the House of Commons, forcing an election, because you just look at what's happening across the country. Most recently in New Brunswick, also in British Columbia, where the incumbent NDP have opened up a big lead, we're likely to see Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe go to the polls today, and all three of those governments have been or will be re-elected with overwhelming numbers because, as John knows, um, crises tend to favour incumbents very strongly. And so um, the the deal that was done, I think, was largely because of uh, a calculation on the part of the Liberals that, one, there was the potential for blowback in terms of being in any way perceived as having brought about an election by refusing to deal reasonably with the NDP. But um, at the same time, uh, the NDP is in no position to fight an election. And I think the same could be said for the Conservatives and, uh, and the Bloc, just given what their leaders have been through. And now that Mr. O'Toole has recovered from COVID, I can say, come on. I mean, in terms of you know, he'll be remembered. One of the first things he's done as conservative leaders to contract COVID, which really makes you wonder what kind of example he was setting in terms of his interaction with others. And um, so I, I don't think it's a terribly good start on his part.
1: Well, is that fair? And I want to yeah, ask I don't Karen and John no. about that. I don't that fair at all. That's nonsense. Yeah, well,
2: given the number of people he interacted with, I don't think it's nonsense at all. Well, well, I but, think, but in but fact, you know, there was a very, 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 contracts contracts a is mean, like a very, very... I mean, he's like a fall every fall other leader. He's expected, to, and every other Canadian, expected to maintain social distancing, expected to wear a mask... And, Expected not to be spreading the disease. Know,
1: okay, but, it's but not, outside it's not of that, shame people who end up getting sick. Right, right. I mean, Karen. We, well, okay, one at a time, Karen. Um, that and that is, you know, that is an interesting point. Do people who get COVID nineteen are they one hundred percent guilty of not following public health rules?
3: No, no, because I, I can tell you, you know, at Variety Village, we had a volunteer come in, and uh, four days later, she called in to say she tested positive for COVID. You know, we did everything. We screened her, we took her temperature, she had no temperature, she has no symptoms. She had chills, so went to go get tested, and that was her only symptom. And so, you know, we did what we had to do. There was no spread here, but certainly she shouldn't be shamed because she has COVID. And she when she found out she had COVID, she took all the right steps. Mm -hmm. And so there are situations that, that occur where even, you know, the best of intentions and the best of protocols, you find yourself in a situation where you didn't know you had it and now you know you have it and then you do something about it, which is exactly what Aaron O'Toole did. And, and he so, was
2: interacting with dozens. I know, but
3: I would not people. want to say he the 700 right people reckless. that tested positive for COVID have all done something.
2: Nor would I ever suggest that, but I am suggesting that Mr. O'Toole was reckless in his behavior and the leader of the federal. I
3: don't think you can say that at, all, Charles, that at all, Charles, at all. Well, okay, given well, the
2: number of people who've been contacted as a result of being in direct contact with Mr. O'Toole post his diagnosis. I think he was acting
0: recklessly.
1: Well, what I found interesting, and maybe it wasn't the right time for it, John, um, when they gave the rebuttals to uh, the prime minister's comments last week on national television, I was sort of waiting for both Yves-Francois Blanchet and Erin O'Toole to speak a little bit about their experience uh, with COVID-19 and neither of them said anything and they both looked perfectly healthy, which I found um, a bit unsettling as a Canadian. I wasn't really sure what is the message you're trying to convey.
4: Well, yeah, and I think, first off, I think, you know, what Charles was saying is just absolutely irresponsible. I think that at the end of the day, um, Aaron O'Toole, as a leader of a political party who by and large ran the leadership campaign for the last six months and did everything uh, by the book and, and was, was able to social distance and, and campaign and do everything that, that needed to be done. Uh, you know, contracts, uh, uh, COVID, does everything he needs to as a result of it by, by isolating, by getting his tests, by getting his family tested. Um, so anything, I think that there are folks who in some cases are irresponsible. Those that blatantly go to parties, and we're seeing that with universities and all that kind of stuff. And and so, yeah, there are people who can be irresponsible during these times. But to say that Arnold Tool was irresponsible, I think, is flat out wrong. So so from that perspective, I, I think that you know we should just keep that in check. But to your point, more more specifically, though, Jane, um, you know, I, I, there may be a time when when he's just he's just finishing his isolation now. But there may very well be a time where he will explain and and maybe talk about his his experience with COVID. But he was obviously one of the ones that was asymptomatic, uh, as opposed to those that that have gotten COVID that had suffered fevers and colds and and what have you. So you know, and it does it seems a bit unsettling when you when you did see him speak after the throne speech. He seemed perfectly normal, but yet tested positive, which again is a warning for all of us. Uh, to be careful because this, this you know you could you know you could be a carrier in, in, in some way uh, without having the symptoms as, as obvious as some others have, have experienced
1: Certainly that is the scariest part of this virus that it manifests itself differently with everybody. Uh, the listeners want to get in on this conversation as well I'm with the strategy panel John Capobianco, Charles Bird, and Karen Stens, Jane for Libby, and Bernie in Mississauga. go ahead, okay. Bernie. Yeah, how you doing, Jane? Just fine. What's uh, on your what's mind? Good
4: conversation you had. I just like to. Put out a few kudos for, uh, Jug meeting. I think, uh, for all the players in the House of Commons with the, the smallest number of seats and everything, that
2: he did, uh, uh, exact something from the Liberals in order to keep them in power. So
4: I think uh, it, it, vokes good for the future. Another year before we have an election or so, uh, the NDP can build up their coffers and give it a fight a more vigorous campaign down the road. And I, uh, I just say as far as, uh, Mr. O'Toole and Mr. Blancheco, uh they come down with the virus and they were taking the picture. And the only one that was on the scene was Meek Singh to answer the throne speech. So I give him a lot of kudos for it.
1: All right, thank you for calling in, Bernie. Okay, bye. A poll came out today, strategy panelists suggesting fifty-two percent of Canadians are very or somewhat confident that the recovery plan outlined in the throne speech will create jobs and strengthen the economy. Thirty-nine percent say they are not very or not at all confident. So, what do you make of this? I mean, it's just a small majority, but Canadians seem pleased with what they're hearing from the Trudeau Liberal slash uh, new Democrats. Charles? Yeah, I
2: think it, it speaks to where Canadians' heads are at at the moment, because there are two huge concerns on the part of almost all Canadians. First is the health and well-being of themselves and their families and loved ones, and, and that goes to health issues associated with covid the other is the potential economic impacts, which for a lot of people, especially in the service industry, have been severe. And it's interesting because we spent a lot of time talking about what the government might do in the context of the throne speech, whether it might choose to introduce transformational policies, whether a base guaranteed annual income, or, you know, take your pick. And so there are still open questions as to whether a lot of the policies that have been introduced are for the purposes of COVID, or if they'll eventually become permanent. But I think in the lead up to the throne speech, and especially at the cabinet retreat a couple of weeks ago, there was a realization that the second wave would soon be upon us, and that the throne speech needed to be rooted very much in COVID and in the pandemic and how the government was going to deal with it. And so that was a strategic decision on the part of the federal liberals. And I think you're seeing that reflected in, in the results of that poll, which seems to be finding favor in what the government
1: has done. Karen, what do you think about that, the contents of the legislation? Well,
3: you know, I, I think, you know, the original question was, you know, 52% of people supported it. And I, and I think that's pretty consistent with the people who are, you um, uh, supporting Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. So, you know, I think that they they think that those are the right measures because they support the government. Um, you know, I, I think that there's, those measures will stabilize income, which is important for people to continue to spend. Um, but I don't believe it creates any jobs. And you know, that we are into a dark time, and I, I think that the government needs to be having a plan that this is going to be with us for the next two years. So these supports are great, but, but we have to, whatever we're going to do, we need to think in the context of the next two years, not just the next six months.
1: And John, your thoughts?
4: Yeah, I think, I think that I'm not, I'm not surprised by the polling. I think that's, as Karen says, consistent, I think, with, with what we've been seeing over the course of the last number of months. And, and I do believe that Canadians are still, you know, very nervous and and very anxious about, about the future. And, and, you know, there was some hope uh, as, as we sort of tail end of summer as things were going down and, and, and everybody predicted a second wave, but we're hoping that there wasn't going to be a second wave. But now we're seeing, obviously, that, that there's a, the beginning of, of a second wave. And and that makes Canadians far more nervous and, and worried about, you know, is this thing going to end? Is this going to go right through the holidays, uh, beyond Christmas, and, and so forth? And what, what does that mean for their jobs? Because a lot of businesses were shut down, and now governments are getting pressure to shut down, but some are resisting. Um, so I think from that perspective, I think, um, you know, Canadians want to hear, um, you know, governments basically say... Uh, as Charles alluded to, you know, have, have COVID on their, on their minds policy-wise and pro- provide funding and, and support, as we're seeing the Liberal government do. So as long as the Liberal government continues to provide that financial support uh, and have policies to allow for that to happen, for businesses to, to continue to, to hire and, and to have, have, uh, have business coming in, then I think Canadians will continue to support the government on, that, on, those, uh, on those policies.
1: And to your point there, we just got a release from the Toronto Boat Show and they've decided to cancel their 2021 events. So now we're starting to hear about events yep. that would normally take place at the beginning of the year and those two are cancelled. Uh, let's talk about Quebec and COVID-19, how it relates to what's happening in Ontario. Bars, restaurants, casinos and movie theatres are closing in Quebec on Thursday for 28 days to curb the second wave of COVID-19. In light of the increasing numbers in this province, not quite what they are in Quebec, but they are, they are on the rise. They were only 50 shy yesterday of Quebec. Quebec was 750, we were 700. Today we're 534 here in Ontario, but should Premier Ford be taking the lead of Premier Legault? I'll put that to the listeners first and then to our strategy panel. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free, 1-866-740-4740. Karen, what do you think about that? Health Minister Elliott says we're not there yet, but it's not out of the question. Yeah, you know, I
3: guess I have a different view on it entirely and that the, the current strategy the government has employed to date has been, you know, closing, restricting, um, putting, uh, you know, telling people that they need to stay home and isolate. And, and again, but, but what we're also seeing, I think, you know, everyone predicted the second wave and we're surprised we have a second wave. Well, the reason is because what, what we're asking people to do by self-isolating and closing is, is not sustainable it's not a sustainable strategy. And we now know, I think that most of us are understanding this is going to be with us for some time. So we need to, if we're going to close and open, close and open, close and open, that is a death sentence for the economy. And we need to come up with a better strategy for testing, home testing, contact tracing, the things that, that we actually can do in that, that are uh, an alternative response to just closing down. Because at some point, people, they, they just can't live that way. And that's, what, and that's a little bit of what we're seeing, even with, with the younger generation. They're out now um, breaking a lot of the rules because they don't see the virus as being that impactful on them. Right. And so w- w- I, I think it's really important that we don't just jump into, okay, we need to close down this whole sector of the service economy because that's only going to buy us a little bit of time. It's not a sustainable strategy.
1: Charles, what do you think about that, the 28-day closure in Quebec? Is it something we should do?
2: Well, that will largely be informed by the numbers. And at the moment, the Ontario government has completed its latest round of COVID modeling, which is, which is very important. And, and the models that are used can be very accurate. And it may be that Premier Ford releases those numbers as early as afternoon. Mm -hmm. But what I've heard is that um, the modelling suggests that the virus in Ontario will peak at the end of October, which uh, suggests we have another four weeks of really scary numbers to go, and that we will be over a 1,000 new cases a day uh, by the middle of the month, and that that will be sustained for a number of days. And that's when people will get very, very concerned, obviously.
1: Not, but interestingly when that modeling came out yesterday it came with the caveat that if more public health restrictions are put in place that we might not get to those 1000 cases a day John
4: Yeah I think you know I still have full confidence in um uh, in the premier our premier premier Ford and how he's been able to do things I think what we're seeing in, in Quebec is is probably the right move for them uh and, uh and premier Legault obviously has taken steps early on to to ensure that those numbers are are maintained, and I know that given the relationship between Premier Legault and Premier Ford, that our Premier is watching that very carefully and and still takes a lot of the advice and counsel from from our health authorities, and then, as Karen said, is, is able to at least uh, you know, restrict and and deal with the cities of Toronto and Peel and others and Mississauga and others that that are that are that have higher te- test cases. Um, but listen, Charles has always made this point, uh, and, and quite rightly so about tests and the fact that we you know we've never had enough tests in the past and over the number of months that we've we've been we've been at this. And I think what we're seeing, and, and unfortunately, the long lineups that that have that have resulted in this. But our people now are are heeding to it. They're they're testing schools ever since school started. I think you've seen more and more folks go and, and get themselves tested. And as a result, we're seeing the numbers increase. Um, so the higher the tests, the good thing, that's the good news. Uh, and the more people that we're seeing get COVID, uh hopefully they're not being hospitalized and they're going to, they can self isolate and, and it runs the, 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 the gamut, you know, relatively un, un uh, harmful to others. But, I think that we're going to sort of see that as as, as as just as cases go up and as people, as testing goes up as well.
1: Okay, back to the phones. You're listening to Zoomer Radio, Jane for Libby, and Alex in Toronto. Alex, hey. what, what do you think we should be doing? Um, I'm
4: at the point now, pretty much, where I think that uh, we should be going back to the state with the cars. I, I drive for a living downtown lot and I cannot tell you the amount of arrogance um Self-centered, mostly young people like see congregating outside of bars, um, smoking cigarettes or vaping. And now I'm talking a group of 30 or 40 people. Okay. Uh,
1: Unfortunately, our line with you is not too good there, Alex, but we take your point for sure. Let's go to Rio in Etobicoke. Rio, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Everybody's obsessed with how many cases. uh, Yesterday, what was it, one or two deaths? That's the that's the important number. That's nothing.
1: Well, and the percentage is the important number too, yeah, right? And, uh, yeah.
2: There's so many tests now. Like back when we had eight thousand tests, you had six hundred and forty. Now you got forty thousand tests. Seven. That's like that's nothing. Like most of, it, and then they're always going on about all oh, the young people. Sixty percent are under forty. Yeah, sixty percent of our population is under forty. That's pretty. <laughs> that's nothing out of out of whack there, right?
1: Okay, the Rio. Thanks I, for your call. Soon, I t- yeah we we get that and that I guess we are seeing that number come down for that demographic that percentage number come down a bit it was getting up close around 80% now it's around 60% uh, I want to talk to our strategy panelists about the fall preparedness plan issued by Premier Ford to date. Uh, Do you like what he's saying? Do you feel like he's ahead of the second wave, he and his ministers, or is he reacting to it? Let's go around the table, Charles.
2: I mean, to an extent, he is reacting to it and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's just in the nature of the unpredictability of the virus. But going back to an earlier point, um, you know, the question of, of closing down, I think there are significant parts of the Ford government who are very much like Karen, that are of the view that we cannot close down, we simply can't afford it. I'm not sure Premier Ford is of that view. I think he is watching these numbers very, very closely and will make a solo decision, if need be, to return the province to stage two as the Ontario Hospital Association has recommended. And there's no doubt that it will come with um tremendous economic fallout and implications. There's just no getting around that. Um and I accept uh the caller's point that, you know, death numbers numbers of deaths as a result of COVID are down because treatment of the disease has gotten better. Over the course of the last six months, as medical personnel have figured out how to deal with it, but um, boy, if this thing starts to spread like wildfire again, and it has the potential to do that, then the strain on our healthcare system could be horrific. And I think the premiers keenly aware of that.
1: Okay, I want to get uh, Karen and Charles uh, and John's opinion as well on the fall preparedness plan to date the massive flu shot campaign. Karen closing restaurants and bars earlier at night, 52 million for 3,700 more healthcare workers. Are you impressed by what you're hearing so far?
3: Yeah, I I think he's taking the right steps because it's not that I, I I mean, just a footnote on Charles's comment. It's not that I don't think businesses should be closed. I think it's appropriate to close some businesses like strip clubs and restrict the hours of bars and not have nightclubs open. I think that's entirely appropriate. But when you go to mass closures, the reason I don't support it is because I don't think it's effective in the long term, because then you just open up again and then close again, open again, close again. Whereas where we need to get to is a point where people can then start actually doing their own self-testing or have not have to wait in a four-hour lineup for a test, but actually can have more immediate a more immediate response to whether or not they are infected and can be contagious. And that's the place that we're not at, which is where we need to get to in order for us to get ahead of this and stop reacting.
1: John, uh, you're the final word here on what we're doing in Ontario before I get uh, your thoughts on tonight's U S presidential election (laughs) debate.
4: (laughs) Um, Well, yes, looking forward to that discussion. But on on this issue, no, I think, I think the premier has been, has been doing a good job, um, especially with, with his preparedness, his fall preparedness plan. Um, you know, uh, uh, Charles is right. You can, you can only react because this, this, as we've seen over the course of the last six months, you don't know, no one can predict what's going to happen. But I do know that. That they have, uh, they were thinking about a, a resurgence or a second wave, you know, months ago, because a lot of the health experts said that in pandemics, this is the case, and this is likely the situation where you know you can get it uh, uh, by way of a second wave. So I think they were preparing for it as best they could, but also reacting to the to the moment, uh, and will continue to react to the moment as as numbers um, you know ebb and flow, and uh, and as they're as the health professionals give them the advice that uh, that they need based on what's happening at, at the of the day.
1: Let's go around the table. What are you expecting to see tonight uh, in debate number one between Trump and Biden? Uh, we'll start with you, Charles.
2: Well, if Biden remembers to wear pants, he should be OK. Um,
1: <laughs>
2: the, I mean, the, the real question is, how do you deal with with uh, a narcissist bully who um, is capable of producing a hurricane of lies in the space of uh, a few seconds?
1: So you just, so you answer, think that just by showing up he'll be in, he'll be in a better position than Donald Trump?
2: Yeah, I mean the the Republicans have the Republican campaign has gone to great lengths to make the case that uh, and, and right wing media have gone to great lengths to make the case that that um, Joe Biden is in the later stages of dementia. And so by showing up and demonstrating that he has a command of the facts and that he's able to remain cool, he should be okay. There's also the added dimension of the release of tax, of, of Trump's tax returns, which, which are devastating. Uh, for Trump. They're devastating politically. They're also, they've got to be devastating psychologically exposed the way he has been exposed as just somebody who's a lousy businessman. The case has been made that for much of the 80s and 90s nobody lost more money in American business than Donald Trump and this runs totally counter to the image he portrayed in 2016 as the ultra successful businessman who could use his savvy to turn government around.
1: Karen, will you be watching?
3: Uh, I I don't I don't know I might tune in for part of it but it's it's kind of like walk, watching a car wreck both of them are you know you just know the frustration is it's not going to make an impact and from my perspective most American voters have already decided who they're going to vote for so this is a bit of theater and it's going to play itself out and you know Trump will be he'll probably bring his bravado and his uh, his whole personality to bear where he'll interrupt and he'll disrupt and he'll you know keep everything. Um, off topic and you know, Biden will do his best, but you know, to Charles' point, how do, you, how do you actually debate someone who is actually not that interested in having a debate and will use everything in his arsenal to upend the process? And so it, I don't think it's going to be a worthwhile exercise, and I certainly don't think it's going to change anyone's hearts and minds who's intending on voting on the next
1: election. As soon as you said that about the theater, Karen, I remember how he lurked behind Hillary Clinton <laughs> <Yeah>. during, <laughs> during 2016 debates. Uh, John, what about you? What do you think is it's going to be all about tonight? Well, the
4: beauty about these, uh, about these debates is sort of the lead up to it. And, and you know, I, I love seeing the old clips of some of the successful debates that have happened in the U.S., uh, and, and those are always fun to watch. But, you know, you, you got to love the Americans who hype this as a title prize fight. Uh, and every network you watch uh, or, or listen to, it's all about this this uh, this duo that's going to be happening. And it's going to be, I think it's going to be much-watched TV. I'm, I'm looking forward to watching it. Um, I think the Republicans... I had to pivot a bit. They were starting to, uh, they were playing the expectations game with, uh, with Biden. Uh, and then they realized, you know, as, as Charles said, and I think that the conservatives that did a mistake with Justin, uh, at the very first election where they, they downplayed his, uh, his role so much that, that, um, you know, that all he had to do was really show up and do well as he did. Uh, And it it, it just mismatched expectations. And I think that's what the Republicans are doing now is they're saying, well, look, he's 47 years of political uh, involvement. He's had thousands of debates. He's going to come in strong. And I think they're trying to manage that expectation. But it's going to be a duo. And I think what's going to happen is they're they're each going to have their lines and and their proposed uh, messages. uh, And uh, and I think it's not going to sway one vote.
1: All right. Great conversation, as always. Thank you, all three. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Jane. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stint, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto, our Tuesday strategy panel.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one.